Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mangum Talks TV. I am Lee. I am here. I am joined by Spencer. Spencer! Say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. Spencer, how are we doing? Doing well. We've got a Queen's Gambit episode to talk about. Why wouldn't we? We got Queen's Gambit. We are firmly in the middle of Queen's Gambit. We're in episode four titled Middle Game. Proper proper title, right? It's yeah, the exact yeah. middle of the series. Um, it's a seven-episode miniseries. We're in episode four. Spencer, what did you think of the episode? Caught me off guard in a few ways. You know, there's a lot of usual beats you see in stories like this, and this one decided to accelerate a lot of them to the middle of the show, which was truly unanticipated and kind of a delight to be caught off guard in that way. I felt like this was the episode where I started to get why it was such a thing, right? Because unless you were on Queen's Gambit early, and if you were, God bless you, but I was, I got on it because I heard people talking about it. And so um, I watched the first maybe three episodes and I was like, ah, this is okay, but I'm not quite sure why this is like the number one show on Netflix, why everyone's talking about it. It was this episode to me that solidified, okay, I'm hooked, which, you know, really is not that great, right? It, it's, it's a seven episode series. It took me till episode four before I really got hooked. But when I got hooked, I got hooked hard because, um, you know, this really was a compelling episode. I thought it, this is kind of the story moment when, when we're really getting hooked. Last episodes really started things off. This one is hammered at home. We were invested in the chess aspect of Queen's Gambit pretty early. But most of the rest of the tale was just kind of, you know, take it or leave it. Now I'm kind of in. I'm really curious where this is going to end up. Right. Yeah, they, it, 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 there is a lot of chess in this episode, obviously, but it is very much a create. It creates a lot of tension um, in Beth, the character and, mm-hmm. and what she's going through. Um, so we are going to jump into a recap of episode four, middle game of Netflix Queen's Gambit. Spencer is going to do Wikipedia Spiral of the Week. And before we get there, I'm going to do best line of the episode and best scene of the episode. Before we jump into the recap, Spencer, anything you want to plug on a sister podcast we do called Mangum Reads? Uh, on Mangum Reads, we're right now going through the Agatha Awards. It's the best short story, cozy mystery of the year. We're struggling with what the definition of cozy mystery is. It's been a bit of a surprise, but it's been quite a bit of fun to go through each of the stories in order and see what we think of them. Also, at the same time, we're going through a little sideshow called Pottering Around as we go through Harry Potter chapter by chapter, currently in the fourth book, The Goblet of Fire. Having ever read Harry Potter before, I'm kind of catching up on everybody else's nostalgia and delighting in doing it as I do. So, it's been quite a bit of fun for both. I hope people listen Pottering Around, very good podcast. Check out Pottering Around. Check out Mangum Reads. Check out Mangum Lasts, Mangum Talks Hoops. We got Mangum Watches, which is a new podcast we do where we watch movies and we talk about it. And then we have a new podcast coming up that'll be ready in about a week or two. And that's um, a podcast where we have a shared experience. So a lot of the guys in the Mangum Talks podcast channel get together and we either share dinner or we send each other something and we look at it. I know it's kind of an ambiguous title. But give us a chance because uh, I think it's going to be a pretty good podcast. So check that one out in about a week. But the matter at hand here is Queen's Gambit Episode 4, Middle Game. And I will jump into the recap before I do so. Anything you want to cover, Spencer? No, I'm ready and excited to talk about it. Bang. All right. We will get started with the recap. Beth is in Russian Russian class. She is making good on her promise to learn Russian. Um and uh, you know she's in class, and they're doing the the typical like Spanish, the, the typical like um, foreign language class that you see, right? Where this the the teacher says blah 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 blah, and then the students go blah 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 blah. And Spencer, I don't know if you took any foreign language classes like in high school or college, but the depiction of foreign language classes in 
popular media, movies, TV shows or whatever, never aligns with what it was for me. <laughs> that, that sort of like say it and repeat it thing no. never really happened. I don't know where that came from. It, it, it is such a trope about, okay, let's pick a verb and let's all conjugate it together and all say it out loud. <laughs> That's pretty much how everybody does or imagines a foreign language class. But like you, not at all what I did at all. I studied Spanish for years. No. Never had that kind of just rote repetition kind of class. Yeah, very strange that that is how we now depict foreign language classes. But anyway, it's how it's depicted on the screen. And Spencer, all I can think about during this scene is, watch out, Soviets. My girl Beth is coming for you. She's got she goals. is She is not content with becoming the co-U.S. champion. She wants to go overseas. She wants to take on the Russians. Um, it, during this scene, it looks like she's making eyes with one of the guys in the room, or at a minimum, the guy is making eyes at her, I guess. He's certainly and staring at her, and she's certainly noticing it. She doesn't seem to hate it. Beth is kind of a, she keeps her, her, her cards pretty close to the, to the vest, so it's kind of hard to tell romantically when she's interested or when she's not. But she walks out. Uh, great walking scene here. I don't know if you caught that. It's like a good 45 seconds of Beth walking. Very West Wingish. I thought that was a good cinematography. The guy who was looking at her stops her and asks what she's doing like right now. Uh, so she says nothing, I guess. So she goes off to this guy. Um, and we cut to them sitting very, very close to each other, smoking some weed. And she's explaining to the guy that she is the co-U.S. Open champion. I think the guy was like, you're the U.S. Open champion. She's like, no, I'm the co. Like kind of a trope we get through the, the episode. Notably, he even asked her, are you the, are you the women's U.S. champion? So it was even a little bit oh, I didn't hysterical. realize that. <laughs> oh, you douche. Um, oh, it's so funny. Uh, so I ended my notes with uh, explaining to the guy that she's the U.S. Open co-champion. You said what you said in my very next sentence. This guy is a world-class douche. So, yeah, I got there eventually. Uh, <laughs> it says he doesn't play chess. He's too cerebral. Spencer, the man is too cerebral for chess. So what does he play instead? Monopoly. Yeah, you got, you got to learn about like capitalism. Idiot. You got to learn about capitalism, man. It's gonna, it's again makes you a capitalist oh. stooge. God, I was so glad I didn't grow up in the '60s when I was listening to this fucking conversation. Um, and he urges Beth not to play it because it makes you a slave to capitalism. Uh, but she asks him why he's learning Russian, Russian, um, and he says he's learning it so that he can read Dostoevsky. Uh, probably butchered that name, but it's anyway. Just Google Russian author. First one that comes up. Yeah. Um, yeah, in the original language. So he uh, he wants to read Dostoevsky in the original language. That's why he's learning Russian. Okay, yeah, you're a super interesting guy. Mm. Guy makes a weak attempt to, to hit on her, which Beth swats away. She goes into the kitchen to use the phone. She calls her mom to explain that she's with some friends from Russian class. Uh, she says she can go ahead and go uh, to bed, telling Alma to go ahead and go to bed. Alma clarifies that she's partying with college kids, and Beth flatly says yes. Very different high school experience for Beth than what I had, right? Because her mom asked the probing question. Let me, let me get this right. So you are telling me I need to just go to bed because you're out partying with college kids. I would have been like, no mom, actually, um, you know, we're doing like a, a support a highway thing. We're out here picking yep, up litter. Yep, I would have yep. come up some bullshit, right? Yep. 17, Beth just flatly. Yes, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. 17 year old me is totally not out there smoking marijuana and drinking with college kids. I'm with this friend that you know that you can call tomorrow at a set time that we've prepared in advance to check on me. <laughs> yeah. I'm mom actually cleaning out a church basement right now. Yep, You'd yep. be so proud of me. Um, <laughs> that is not the relationship oh, the two of these two have, these two have though. 
Hell no, they don't. And probably for the better, right? Because Beth's yeah. able to be very honest with her and Alma just warns her to be careful about what she smokes. Alma, she's OG, man. She's out in them streets. She knows the Puff Puff Pass situation, all great when you have marijuana, Spencer, but sometimes it can go sideways if somebody else introduces another substance in there. So I think that's what Alma's uh, preparing her for, warning her about. Beth gets off the phone, has a flash of memories of sexual scenes she's been in. Um, you know, back when she was at the orphanage watching the, the couple, you know, get down and dirty on the, uh, I guess, at the, the the bed of a truck, which was uh, very romantic. And then the scene we had last episode in Las Vegas where it looked like she almost went in um, with what's his name until that fucking asshole showed up. Um, <laughs> was it fucking Greg? Was it Greg? Fucking Greg showed up. Uh, anyway, she had this flash of these scenes and the guy sits next to her, hands her a Budweiser and asks... Um, what the burning candle is that she's looking at, um, burning candles, just a penis. Um, and, uh, I guess he was, uh, I guess this was his attempt to like broach a sexual subject with her. I don't know, but she says, I don't know. What do you think it is? Um, bang, cut to the guy on top of Beth. So, um, you know, cut to bang, if you will, cutting to bang. And she asked the words, the world's most distressing question on hooking up Spencer. How much longer? (laughs) Most distressing question anyone can ever ask when hooking up. Um, he says just a little bit, uh, gives it a, I would say a half-hearted college try, gives up, says she says he's pretty stoned. Beth rolls over, looks annoyed. She falls asleep as Donovan by Burt's Blues plays in the background. A lot of good 60s music oh, in yeah. this episode. Um, Donovan's a really good song too. Anything you want to talk about uh, with Beth's first sexual scene that we see on the show? No, she seemingly does it on a bit of whim and horniness and isn't too thrilled by it. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of content that it's over, really. So a bit of a disappointing first try, but I think we all can say that's kind of the norm. Yeah, seems pretty realistic in that respect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she wakes up the next morning and the house is empty. She sees a note that says, inexplicably, everyone went to see it. it's Cincinnati to see a movie. What? And they left her a joint. So, you know, good good people there. Beth then decides to stay. Yeah. <laughs> she makes herself at home. She, 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 she smokes up and cleans like the best house guest ever. Yeah. Takes a shower, smokes the joint, starts cleaning the apartment, goes on a bit of a bender there because yeah. uh, grabs, grabs some Budweiser and then eventually goes out to get herself some Ripple. Um, unclear how long she stays at this apartment by herself, but she eventually calls Alma. Alma is concerned. Um, I would say justifiably so. Beth explains that she's gone to Cincinnati to see a movie, which Alma sees right through. Um, ask her if she's with a boy. Beth says, well, I was last night. Again, you know, Beth is, can be really brutally honest with Alma, and Alma takes it in stride. She says, wow. Um, Beth says she won't get pregnant. Don't worry, Alma. Famous last words. Uh, potential line of the episode there. And Beth keeps drinking in the apartment alone. And, and not, not um, just drinking. There's drinking and there's drinking. This is the kind of oh, yeah. drinking where she just takes a a wine bottle and we just see her chugging a bottle of wine. Yeah, she's she's going on a bender. Um, she's going on a bender there by herself. Um, you know, she's probably about 19 years old at this point. It's a it's Seven, a really 17 as we find out later. Really 17 actually. Really really bad sign for things to come when you're going on a bender alone in the house at 17 years old. And then along comes Mary uh, by the song. association plays. Yeah, great song. Anything you want to talk about with um, 
with Beth's first uh, first real uh, foray into alcohol abuse. I mean, it's supposed to it's both it's a real combining of adult moments. This is really Beth on her own for kind of her first time of where she is off with a boy, she's losing her virginity, she's drinking by herself, she's partying, she's met, she's keeping a home. This is Beth is a pseudo adult and there's a lot of worrying signs about what she apparently thinks that means. Yeah, I mean, I you know, uh, most 17 year olds dabble in alcohol. I think that what this scene is supposed to show you is that Beth's relationship to these substances jumped immediately to, I need to do this alone to feel good as opposed yeah. to I'm doing this out socially. Right. So I think they want you to, I think what they're trying to do is get the audience to go, Whoa, Whoa, that's a problem. What? Right. They're trying to show you that in, in very stark direct terms, problematic drinking. Right. I mean, Beth has dabbled with various kinds of intoxicants since, what, age nine, was it? Age eight? Now, yeah, when she first started getting those benzos, yeah. Now she has fully committed. And it... We see a lot of that in the course of this episode. It's one of the underlying themes that Beth is trying to ride the line of a functioning alcoholic, but it would not take much to move her in into an entirely different direction. Yeah, she starts out at a, at a, at a probably a fourth gear. Yeah. On the on the alcohol scale, which is is a pretty tough place to start, uh, we do find out later in the in the episode when she's asking specifically for pills that the pills that she has been wanting all this time, presumably the ones that she got um, in the orphanage that she got on, are Librium. So those are benzodiazepines. So boom, shout out to me. I called that one. Um, cuts of Beth, I graduated from high school and almost there. Very supportive. Does the little cheer, the whistle. Spencer, when you graduated from high school and you walked to the stage, did any did you have family scream or friends made do anything? I swear on dead relatives that they would not. Dear God, would I have hated that? I had some of my my family didn't didn't say anything, but I did have some some friends, uh, some boys in the audience hollering. Um, God knows what, probably something stupid uh, at the time. Uh, but I did the I did the the Tiger Woods fist pump. Mm-hmm. As I crossed the stage, I thought that was a good call. Not, you know, just a little fist pump for everybody. Um, uh, back home, Alma pops a bottle of champagne, which she is sharing with Beth. They toast, and Beth says she's so, and Alma says she's so proud of Beth. Alma gives her a gift, a blova, something like blova? that. Yeah. What's what? what how, how do you pronounce that? I I can't remember. If, I mean, Alma pronounces it, but it's the type of watch. Blova, blova. I did not Do you remember? Sound, sound something like that, yes. Yeah, I can't, God, I can't remember um, how she pronounced it. I, I looked it up, and it is a famous watch company. I had never heard of it before this scene. Um, but apparently it's pretty expensive. And I think Alma was trying to make that point. Like, hey, yeah, I really went out on a limb here. It's an expensive watch. It says, uh, with love from mother. Uh, hell of a gift, Alma. Beth says it's perfect. Beth does seem to genuinely appreciate the gesture. Um, again, we're getting... Man, they're hitting you hard and early, right, Spencer? Are the Alma-Beth relationship. They want they you to close? know that these two are close. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Telegraphing it a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Alma suggests Beth might be going to a graduation party, but Beth says no. They have Mexico City in two weeks, then the U.S. Championships, then Remy Valen, then Paris. This surprises Alma, and Beth explains that she was invited. Alma, Paris, my God. Things are beginning to happen. Potential line of the episode right there. Mm-hmm. 
So not, you know, I'm kind of flying through the recap because not a lot to cover here. I do think they're just trying to hit you about the head with the idea that Alma and Beth are, are close, right? They, they, and, have, a, um, they have a very rare kind of relationship between mother and daughter. It is toxic in its own ways, but it's remarkably close and it's remarkably caring. And, and it's honest. It, it's very it's more honest. honest, more honest than I think most people are with their parents at, at that age. Uh, you, you probably uh, you're probably outside of that. I imagine you were pretty honest with your parents, but most people at that age were lying to their parents and trying to get the hell away from them. I didn't have the things to lie about, which made that a lot easier. Uh, cut to them flying, and Alma is ordering another cerveza, por favor. Mm. And Beth is studying pawn structure analysis. Um, th- this scene gets called back later, right? Uh, because Beth is studying how to kick some ass with her pawns, which she does later. Uh-huh. Alma then says she has a confession to make. She explains that when she was a kid, she had a Spanish pen pal. Woo, Manuel. Woo, Spencer. Getting hot in here. She corresponded with this person even when he when she was married to Alston. They exchanged photographs. Ah, this is like um, this is like sliding into the DMs, nineteen sixty version. <laughs> oh boy, uh, man, Alma sliding into the manual DMs. Mm-hmm. Um, he's meeting them at the airport. Alma, I have to say, I'm really quite thrilled. Beth asked if this is the reason she wanted to go to Mexico early. Alma says she supposes so. Supposes so. Alma. Come on. Be honest this is with obviously now. the reason you wanted to go early. Um, Beth, I don't know what you, you thought of Beth's reaction here, but I just wrote, Beth doesn't really seem to know what to do with this. Beth is <laughs> thoroughly confused. This is not a side she's ever seen out of Alma. She's only herself <laughs> begun to dip her toe in the idea of romantic relationships. So to see her mom act like a giddy schoolgirl on the subject, she's positively flabbergasted and remains such throughout the episode. Probably would be pretty weird, right? I mean, my parents split, uh, but I never saw them after that, like in the giddy, like, oh my God, I can't wait to meet, meet him or meet her thing. That, that had to be pretty strange. Um, and Beth really <laughs> acts it, the actress, actress acts it pretty well. She's she's kind of flabbergasted by it. Cut to a montage of Mexico City and Beth is in the backseat of a car and Manuel is in the front with Alma. Manuel's bragging a bit about Mexico City. I don't know if he caught that. It was like a, a lot of like how great Mexico City yeah, was. Everyone like, comes mm-hmm. to Mexico. All the great intellectuals. All that kind of yeah, advertisement yeah. shit. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, totally flirting, and Beth rolls her eyes at this. Cut to Beth walking up the stairs of the hotel. Great upbeat jazz music is playing. This hotel is really swanky, Spencer. Multiple levels. There's bars everywhere. Stained glass. And we see set up throughout the multiple levels, throughout all of these sitting areas, are chessboards. Yeah, I, I Googled it. I, this hotel impressed me so much I wanted to know if it was actually a real place. It is, but it's in Germany. Oh. There, is, there is no no such hotel in Mexico City, apparently. At least there is not anymore. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, it is. It's a hell of a hotel. Beth then runs into, is it Matt and Mike? Is that these guys' the, names? I think the, that's the, it. The chess twins of the twins. I think that's them. Yeah. Um, they, they comment, your mom has a new friend, Beth. She came in at 3 o'clock this morning, 2.30 the day before. He's got a green Dodge that always seems to be at her disposal. And they've had lunch and dinner every day this week. Pretty sure they're fucking. <laughs> is, 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 she pon- is she pondering this out herself? Or does she just want to know her, what let her friends know? I think it's a little of both, right? It seems yeah. like she's kind of feeling it out on her own. Uh, but they, they just seem to get a kick out of it. They don't yeah. they don't seem uh, at all uh, worried about this turn of events. Cut to the hotel room, and Alma is babbling about why she's so happy. So Giddy happy. Alma, I, uh, I I don't have a lot of patience for. I don't know about you. <laughs> I appreciate that this is probably the happiest we've ever seen her. It's like she, yeah. she is acting like a little teen again, and it's just, you know, 
with this sadly being some of the last moments we're gonna have with the character, at least she ended on a pretty good note. She, this is this is one of the happiest moments she's had in years, it seems. Ugh. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know. It's annoy the show to me. Oh God, maybe it's the altitude, Spencer. No, maybe uh, it's the work ethic of the city, Spencer. Ugh. Beth is not interested in this at all. Alma if, says if maybe she'll were, have just. Go ahead. If you were sitting in this room, would you just said no, Mom? It's because you're getting some. Just like cut through the crap. Yeah, I thought Beth was going to do some version of that, but she, you know, Beth also rides the line of what you just talked about, right? She likes to see Alma happy, so. Yeah. She's rolling her eyes a lot at these scenes. She's doing a lot of like dramatic exhaling, but she is she's not directly contradicting Alma no, or, she, or really putting a pin in her balloon, right? She doesn't want to rain on her parade. She she wants to let her have this moment. At the same time, she's barely keeping in her frustration about it too. Uh, Alma says she would like to have just one, just one Spencer Margarita before she goes out. Always a good sign when you drink before you go out to drink. Yeah, Beth okay. orders one. <clears throat> Beth orders one with a Coke for herself. Alma says Beth could come along to the Folklorico, which I looked up. Basically, it's one of those big traditional Mexican dance parties um, with the huge dresses and the mariachi, mariachi and the whole thing. Um, oh. So I, you, if, you, if you Google it, you'll see the, 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 the female dresses for the Folklorico, and it will immediately be recognizable to you. Um, gotcha. It, it, yeah, it's very much, we've all seen that before with the, the flamingo guitar and the mariachi and the whole thing. Alma says it's a beautiful day, and Beth corrects her. It's been raining the last few days. Oh, yeah, that, okay, I take it back. Beth actually does put a pin in her balloon at one point. <laughs> it's at the end of the conversation. She has had damn well enough at this point. I guess she had enough, yeah. Um, Beth says she has to work on in games, which she is studying for the tournament. Alma says maybe Beth needs to work on herself, focus on what's important, quote, living and growing. Beth, with a sleazy Mexican salesman, says that under her breath. Alma keeps babbling, finally settles on Beth needing to go have fun the day before the tournament starts. Mm-hmm. Beth counters by explaining she's playing against Octavio Marinko um, at 10 o'clock the next day. He's 34 and a grandmaster. Oh, shit, Spencer. Mm-hmm. I don't know that she's ever played a grandmaster before, has she? Closest not that we've seen. Closest guess might be Benny Watts, but I'm not. you don't know for certain what his official title is. This is definitely her first internationally recognized grandmaster, I would say. She explains that if the if she loses, they'll be paying for the whole trip. So there are big stakes here. If she wins, she'll be playing someone even better in the afternoon. Um, so she's got to stay and study. Alma Beth <clears throat> says she's an intuitive player. Alma says the moves that get the biggest cheers are the moves she makes quickly. Alma, intuition can't be found in books. Alma, I think you just don't like Manuel. Beth says, well, Manuel's all right, but he doesn't come by to see me. Good quote here by Alma. That's irrelevant. You need to relax. There's no player in the world as gifted as you are. I haven't the remotest idea what faculties a person needs to play chess, but I am convinced that relaxation can only improve them. Okay, I'm going to put a pause in this. Spencer, what do you think of Alma's point here? Um, this idea that if you are you're studying for a big event. Oh, here, boom. Here's something. Maybe, maybe, maybe uh, something I can put in your language. If you are studying for the bar. Yes. And you've been studying... For months. Mm-hmm. What do you think of the argument that the day before you, you really need to put the book down, you need to clear your mind and get in a good headspace? I actually strongly recommend that. I mean, maybe not even the day, you can do a little study for that day, but particularly for like the last hours before you go to sleep, the last hours before the bar the next day, find a way to just free your mind. Stress is what's ultimately going to kill you. Getting in your own head is what's ultimately going to ruin all the preparation you've done before. 
find a moment of peace however you can. For me, before I took the bar in uh, Virginia, I went on a little bit of a scrubs marathon, and I credit that with clearing my mind to help me pass the bar. It. I actually agree with this, too. Uh, I think that, e- now, here's the caveat, that you have actually prepared, right? Yes. If you haven't prepared, then then by God, cram all you can. But if you've actually prepared, put the books away, do something to clear your mind. I think that Alma makes a good point here. But I do think that you could also read this situation as Alma just wanting a party buddy. It, um, I'm being I'm being pretty sympathetic to Alma here and, and, and giving her the benefit of the doubt. But I think another view of this situation could be she just wants somebody to party with. I'm, a, I'm going with your first interpretation, too. I think I agree with you that it's more that she just very much cares about her daughter and wants what's best for her. And I don't think this is in any way bad advice. I mean, Alma doesn't have much of a background in chess, but I think it's good just general life advice to live by. Yep. Beth reluctantly agrees. Cut to Beth at the zoo. Walking by some cool flamingos, Beth goes up to a stand and gets a cerveza, por favor. Cut to a flashback. Vision of Mr. Scheibel. Quote, potential line of the episode here. People like you have a hard time. Two sides of the same coin. You've got your gift. And you've got what it cost. Hard to say for you what that will mean. You'll have your time in the sun, but for how long? You have so much anger in you. You have to be careful. Did we ever see this quote? In no, the this, no. This is off camera. Mm-mm. Yep, this is this is a flashback that we never saw the origin of. Um, um, I mean, they. I mean, it, this seemed like a kind of throwaway scene of Beth at the zoo, but they just happened to drop this line in here that, like, I've got bolded, underlined, and italics in my yeah. notes because I feel like it's like. This is like the, the, he wrote the book on Beth here, right? Yeah, th- this is the moment of like, okay, let's summarize a character in, two, in three sentences. Just like, this is, this is the character and this is their struggle. Let's have, our, let's have someone say it out loud. It's an incredibly yeah. important line. Oh, phenomenal. Uh, he, he totally calls it. Well, uh, Beth is remembering that line, remembering what, uh, his insight into her. And she gets another cerveza, por favor. Then she walks in and sees, what does she see, Spencer? She sees Borgo. What does she see? With his fat. Well, she sees two things. One. Wait, wait for it. What does she see first? She sees some orangutans. Orangutans! Yes, she does. Yes. She sees some orangutans. These are real orangutans, too. So they went to some sort of zoo to film this thing. She sits and watches them and drinks. And I would like to admit, I have a, you know, like Alma had a little confession to make. I got a little confession to make here. What's your confession, sir? Uh, in this episode of Manga Talks TV, Spencer uh, and our loyal audience, I have a confession. I have done this exact thing. At the DC Zoo, I have snuck alcohol into the DC Zoo uh, and sat there and drank and watched orangutans. Well, I can tell you that it's a good day. Was it Cerveza Corona? Mm, it was prob- probably a little, something a little stronger than that, but I was did drinking and watching orangutans, and, and it is uh, it was fun. And did your immediate Russian rival and his family also show up to see the orangutans there with you? They might have, but man, I told you it was a little stuff a little stronger in a beer. Um, <laughs> gotcha. But uh, quick aside though, when I when I used to go and sit at the DC Zoo and watch these orangutans, I did one day hit the jackpot, won the lottery with the zoo, and some orangutan locked in with me. It was like the male of the group, locked in, locked eyes with me, and for a good three four minutes, did every mimicked every single move I made. Oh man, that's and special. it was thrilling. That's a, that's a special really? moment right there. It was. Anyway, way off the <laughs> way tangent, but that did happen to me. It was really cool, and I thought about that during the scene. But, Spencer, to your point, Beth does see Vasily Borgov. Borgov is there um, with his family, 
and presumably to play in the chess tournament, which seems to affect Beth. I think it, it jukes her a little bit. As she walks away, though, this is an important part of this scene. As she walks away, looks like Borgoff took notice of her. It does. You know, he's at first just like he's there with his family. He's got no. He's not paying attention to anything else. But as she walks away, he turns and stares. He was, I agree, yep. very much aware of her presence. Yep, and he probably noticed that she was sitting there drinking alone, too. Cut to that evening, or maybe early morning, and Alma is walking in. Beth tells her, go ahead, you can turn on the light, I'm awake. Uh, we've all had that with a roommate, right? Roommate comes in late, <laughs> a little drunk, trying to, trying to stay quiet. And you're like, you know what, dude, just turn the light on. I, I'm awake. Um, uh-huh. Alma's coughing, says she maybe caught a virus. She doesn't know if she'll be able to watch Beth's match in the morning. She's not well, Spencer. <sighs> Yeesh. Beth agrees to tell her about it, um, and we cut to Beth swimming. With the twins. And here's someone with the twins, having a good time. All the pool scenes, she seems to be really enjoying the pool um, of the hotel. All the pool scenes uh, seem pretty positive uh, for Beth. She's having a good time. We hear The next morning, we hear someone announcing the tournament and says Beth has caught a lot of people's attention. The match is starting. Quote, he opened with a... This is Beth explaining to Alma later, quote, he opened with a pawn to queen four. I opened with a pawn to queen's bishop four. In 31 moves, I had his king in a mating net. She's so do- she, she kicked that domin- guy's ass. Yeah, she's dominating its grandmasters now. Absolutely clear just what level of pedigree uh, Beth now has in the chess, in, in the world of chess. Beat a grandmaster in what, 31 moves? Unbelievable. Uh, cut to Beth watching Alma dancing late at night with Manuel. Beth is uh, swimming. Uh, very rushed piano piece, piece plays during this montage. A lot of arpeggios going on in the background. Um, and it's some version of the theme music of the show, too. And I love when shows do this, where they have, like, Game of Thrones did this a lot, where they have, like, this, like, main melody of the of the of the show and then they kind of play versions on that mm-hmm. sometimes in a different key maybe a minor key um to to uh, at certain points during the show i thought that was a cool effect yeah it's, 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 the, we've talked before the way they use music on the show is quite successful both in bringing in recognizable tunes from the 60s but also setting the mood with derivations of the theme like you said Yep, the announcer says in Spanish, um, undefeated this morning she played the Queen's Gambit declined against the Austrian Diedrich, facing relentless pressure in the middle of the board. Harmon had him on his heels from the start. She did it mostly with pawns. That's what I was talking about before. Mm -hmm. Mostly with pawns and crushed his position as one might crush an egg. That's our girl, Beth Harmon, crushing you as someone might crush an egg. And appears to have almost reduced this guy to tears. This is the first player we've seen that yeah. clearly does not take losing to her well. He's broke it up and just walks away. Well, we've made a point in previous episodes to talk about how gracious everybody is. The, Diedrich is not gracious. He is pissed. Yeah. Um, but you know what? Um, it, Harmon is too much of a beast. I, I, the announcer even explains that Diedrich played well, but there was not much he could do. Beth is just a, a, just a freight train right now. Mm-hmm. Um, cut to Beth playing cards, Matt and Mike near the pool. Again, pool scenes. Seems to be having fun. Yeah, she's enjoying this tournament. As much as it is a challenge, as much as extensive prep she's done, this is also fun for her. And it's important to remember that. Cut to folks, including Beth, watching Borgoff. Borgoff seems quite confident. Man, does he seem confident when he's playing chess in this episode. He is unflappable. Unbelievable. Man, this guy is cool, calm, collected. Beth goes back to the hotel room and Alma's on the balcony. Alma explains that Manuel is not coming tonight. He had business in Oaxaca. Apparently there's a, din, there's a Denver of Mexico. 
Yeah, Beth asks how long will be gone, Alma, at least until we leave. Alma gives that sort of sad smile. Beth says she's sorry, Alma. I've never been to Oaxaca, but I bet it resembles Denver. At least she has a good, good, good uh, uh, personality, good, good sense of humor about herself. Yeah, I don't know what she necessarily intended out of this. She definitely had fun, and I, I think she had realistic expectations about how long a thing this would be, and that kind of minimizes the harm right now. It seems like it was about, what, three or four days, something like that? When she she got there a couple days earlier, and it's been a couple days of the tournament. So, yeah, probably, probably about four days. I mean, so you have a lot of flings. Like, typically, how long do they, is it like four days, five days? No, no, my, mine is usually a single evening, and they're out. That's, that's how I run. That's it. Just one, one night. <laughs> I don't even stay over. Damn, Spencer. I'll Tough. Um, Beth says they can have dinner together. Um, you can go take me to one of the places, you know, I guess maybe one of the, the local places that she scoped out with Manuel Alma. It was fun while it lasted. <sighs> Poor Alma, but at least we won't have to hear her babbling about Manuel anymore. What is it with Mexico City is. What is it with you and your happiness, sir? Cannot this woman have her moment? I don't know. It just seemed, it's just a little much. A, li- a little much with the maybe it's the altitude. Maybe it's the... Oof, that yeah, was that, that, anyway. Yes, that was annoying as all shit. <laughs> <laughs> Cut to Beth at a chessboard, and a young kid with a Russian accent walks up. Pretty young, Spencer. I did not have any conception or any expectation that someone this young would be playing in a tournament like this. It yeah. is it is almost shocking when you see him. Yeah, I think I either said during the episode or it's in the notes for the production, but he is 13, and he is... <laughs> Alma is clearly seeing a bit of herself in what this little prodigy represents. So question for you. Did you get the impression that this little 13-year-old might have had a thing for Beth? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he was struggling. He was struggling. This little actor plays it great, man, because he is, like, looking at her like she is just the, the most beautiful thing he's ever seen. And he's fumbling for words and shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, he introduces himself as uh, Gorgi Gerev mm-hmm. and says he's honored to meet Beth. Um struggling serious kid but struggling with uh with one beth Harmon. a serious kid (laughs) the picture of the pick the picture of politeness he is clearly well trained he is clearly trying to adhere to certain standards of decorum but it is a struggle with just the um, the personification of beauty and everything he desires to be across the table from him i can't imagine at that age seeing someone like that and having to interact with her i would have been a disaster um, as they play, there is someone following the game on a larger board for everyone to see. I thought that was a cool effect, right? Uh-huh. Um, the guy standing there with the larger board, moving the pieces around. So people who are watching, they don't necessarily have to watch the board. They can watch this guy. Um, one of the things I like, one of the things I like too, is just the transition in the, um, the character, the, uh, personality we see out of this kid is that when he first steps up, he's polite. He's kind of following, you know, the stand, the things he learned in the Russian equivalent of Katalian. Um, he's clearly a little bit tongue-tied when it comes to her, but the moment the chess pieces start moving, he is mechanical, he is precise, and he is skilled. He's he does at, lock in. He's moving yeah. at the exact same speed and the exact same kind of clip that we usually see out of Beth. And that's a very pointed kind of comparison between the two. And I think Beth noticed that she had the upper hand when they were just talking. Uh, yeah. She probably, I mean, she knows. She's thir- any, any and all 13-year-old boys are going to lose their shit over this girl, mm-hmm. obviously. But when they start to play, it changes, and Beth notices that. Yes. Um, so they start to play. A good bit of time passes. Gorgi eventually says, it's been hours now. Perhaps we must adjourn. They decide to adjourn at Beth's move. So when they adjourn, I, this is something I did not know until this scene, and I looked it up, and this is a real thing. So, mm-hmm. Spencer, me and you, we're playing chess. Yes. It's my turn, and we both decide, all right, let's adjourn to the next day. 
you, the person whose move it is, has to write down their next move. And, and then hand it to someone. Right. So and then the next day when they get together, that move gets played and then the person can go. So it does two things, right? One, the person whose move it is can't sit there and marinate on the next move all day. Mm-hmm. And the then, but also it, the person who's, um, you know, playing against the person whose move it is can't sit there and marinate on their next move either because they don't know what the next move on the table is. So it's kind of genius. Yeah, I had never thought about it before, but that is the perfect way of addressing those problems. Just have it written yeah. out and bound. The move has already occurred, and now everybody has to run with it the moment the game starts again. So Beth can't obsess on her next move, and he can't obsess on his next move because he doesn't know what move Beth has. It Very smart, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, the, the Beth gets up very annoyed um, that the, I, I, I took it that Beth was annoyed that this kid was going the distance with her. I don't yeah. think she expected that to happen. Gorgie follows her, quote, Miss Harmon, may I ask you something? In America, I'm told that one sees films inside the car. Is this true? <laughs> she says, drive-ins. You mean drive-in movies? Yes, Elvis Presley movies. Debbie Reynolds, Lesbeth Taylor. This happens? <laughs> Beth, it does. I would dig that. <laughs> love Gorgie. I, I Gorgie's my kid. MVP of the episode. Yeah. This, this, kid, this kid is awesome. I love he's essentially trying to chatter up. He doesn't... Oh, yeah. Man, he's A, really is honestly curious about this. But more importantly, he just wants to talk to the pretty girl a little bit longer about Shoot something Shoot your social. shot, Gorgie. Yeah. Shoot your shot. Yeah, and also, you know, he's trying to be hip. He's trying to be cool. He would dig that. It's, it's adorable. That. Beth just walks off. She doesn't oh, know what to do with that. I, I, was um, kind of, I was kind of pissed at some of her initial interactions with Gorgie here. Is that he's really trying... You know, it's a. She should be respectful of this kid the same way her opponents were when she was just a prodigy coming up. Yeah, well, she's just in a terrible mood because she can't believe that she had to go to the distance with this kid. Um, yeah. She's in an awful mood. But you're right; he is just chatting her up, and he's trying to like play it cool. Georgie shot his shot. Shout out to Georgie. Good job, you. kid. Good job, kid. Uh, the next morning, Beth is in the bathtub practicing thinking. Beth hears Alma make a noise. She kisses Alma, who appears to be sleeping, goes downstairs. Beth's move happens as she wrote it down, and now it's Georgie's turn, right? Mm-hmm. Beth gets up. This is where, this is. remember before I told you, I think Beth took notice that when she's just chatting with this kid, she's got the upper hand. But when they're locked in on the board, she doesn't. So what does she do? Every time it's his turn to play, she gets up and walks around. Yeah, she starts fighting him off the board. She starts doing that kind of intimidation trick that we last saw with uh, Mr. Scheibel and the uh, neighboring high school teacher, of where she just walks away. She just acts annoyed and acts frustrated and just stares him down from a different part of the room. And you could immediately see how much this knocks him off his game and how much he really doesn't appreciate this. Yep, completely throws him off. She's kind of dancing around a little bit. He moves, Beth comes back. Moves very confidently. And then steps away, again. sits down, and starts tapping her foot annoyingly. Yep, absolutely. So, tapping her foot repeatedly. Uh, this goes on a couple times. And then finally, Georgie looks at Beth. For you, Beth Hardiman, I resign the old-fashioned way. Mm-hmm. And he drops his king. Beth walks over, leans into the table. I've never been to a drive-in either. Him, still stewing on this. Because the kid is, the kid's, he, he thinks she's, you know, pretty damn attractive, but he is still very competitive. I should not have let you do that. The Rook. Her. No, but you won't let the next one who tries it. And I appreciated this. Now that she's actually won, now that she's buried the poor little bastard, now she's being the kind of respectful older figure that she needs to be. 
Yep, um, he says he'll be the ne- he'll be the world champion one day. Beth asks when. He says in three years. Beth, if you win, what will you do next? I don't understand. If you're world champion at 16, what will you do with the rest of your life? I don't understand. This kid can't compute the idea that there's something else he should be doing that's not be world champion. That's all he has ever been conditioned to care about. He can't even answer the question. Bet we end the scene with a great line, great back and forth here. Beth, you're the best I've ever played, the kid, until you play Borgov. And he says that with such profound regret, too. It's just like, yep. you have no oh. idea what a good player is yet. You haven't even yep. gotten, I don't even compare. I don't merit on the same page as Borgov. And you're it took you two days to beat me. Yeah. <laughs> and I, it's, it's a very interesting thing, because I want to ask you this. When she asks him, what are you going to do with yourself when you become world champion in chess? How much is she asking him the question she's been asking herself? hundred percent. Yeah. It, it, it's a, you know, she sees a lot of herself in this kid. I mean, you pointed it out immediately that she was this prodigy at one point playing when she was much younger than anyone would expect a participant in these tournaments to be. Um, and she, she, I think she sees himself herself in this kid. And she, I think one of the lessons that she's learned is trying to figure out what do you care about other than chess, right? That's something that Beth has struggled with something the entire that, show. And I think she's trying to plant. Yeah, exactly. And she's trying to plant that seed with my man, Gorgi. But uh-huh. I don't think it really got there. No, I mean, he's 13. He hasn't ever had a world outside of chess. He has had no, nope. op- no opportunities, no horizons to ever imagine something that's been outside of chess. So it's an early seed to plant, but that's not going to sprout for many a year to come. Nope. Cut to Beth looking back over the board. Then she walks to the lobby where Alma is playing the piano and she has a crowd. Look at Alma! Playing the piano for everybody. Woo! Big scene here for Alma. Um, She looks up. Beth, look what I found. Talking about the piano. And we thought Alma was scared to play in front of people, Spencer. Look Mm -hmm. at her. Beth watches on. Alma finishes and gets a round of applause. Alma introduces Beth as the U.S. champion. Beth corrects her co-champion. Yeah, I love that line about look what I found. Because it could either be interpreted to mean she found a piano or she found herself. And she finally found what she wanted to do. Yeah. Look at look at look at what I found that I can do. Um, so much for your stage fright, Beth says. Uh, Alma, I play fine as I play fine as long as it's for fun. Uh, they plan to go out and eat. Beth turns around and sees she's scheduled to play who? Spencer? Borgov. Borgov. Alma, let's eat in the room. I think that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's a good idea. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe need to uh, buckle down, fasten the hatches, Spencer. It's it's going to be a long night and a long day. Gird your loins. This is going to be the greatest challenge you've ever faced. It, I've I, I, I written down this scene in off place in my notes, but when is her elevator arrive with Borgoff and Associates? Is that coming up? Right right now. Gotcha. Now, very next scene. Cut to Beth getting on an elevator. In this elevator, Borgoff gets on with some of his other Russian, I guess, handlers. I think we learn later that some of these at least are, are KGB mm-hmm. um, that are there to make sure he doesn't run away. Um, which I imagine he, he has near him every time he leaves the country. Um, they start talking and Beth can understand what they're saying and they don't know that. They do not have any idea that Beth can actually speak the language. They say, uh, she translated, of course, in Moscow, she'll be jet lagged. We can destroy her then. She's getting better. We have to deal with her here or in Paris before she gets too strong. There's talk she's a drunk. Uh, her game is almost all attack, so she doesn't always watch her back. When she blunders, she gets angry and can be dangerous. Borgoff responding here, not a good look for my man Borgoff. Like all women, 
Then he says, she's an orphan, a survivor. She's like us. Losing is not an option for her. Otherwise, what would her life be? Again, again, back to the question that Beth asked Georgie, which you so astutely, astutely pointed out, was really a question for herself. What would you? What will you do when you reach that mountaintop, right? What will you do when you become that champion that you've been obsessing about? Borgoff is calling it right out now. She can't lose. It's not an option for her. Otherwise, yeah. what would she do? And there's, there's a certain measure of respect in that line. She even says she's like us, which is a profound yep. statement of respect coming from the Russians right now. And For sure. For a player that he's never played, for a player that a lot of his associates are kind of dismissing as being a bit of a you know a fire in the pan, he's indicating a lot of respect for her. He's paid attention mm-hmm. to her. He's apparently researched her a little bit to know about her background. Um, so it is simultaneously a little bit dismissive, a little bit probing, a little bit, but also with a profound amount of respect going in there too. Borgov does seem to understand her. He turns yes. around and sees that she's on the elevator. Um, they play it super cool. Uh, if we didn't have the, the translation and Beth couldn't speak Russian, I'm sure she would have never thought that they were actually talking about her. Um, they walk off, and it seems the conversation got in Beth's head a little bit. Um, and, and there's a question I want to ask you. We saw in a prior episode Benny Watts really get in Beth's head this kind of off-the-board talk. Is this an intentional moment, or did they just not know that she spoke Russian and thought that it wouldn't matter if they spoke around her? I think that that it was the latter, right? I think that they just assume that no one can understand what they're saying. I think they're they're getting a little too comfortable in the in the idea that everybody in Mexico City doesn't speak Russian. So I I imagine if you follow these guys around all day, they're talking shit about everybody just out in the open because they just assume nobody can understand them. Very possible. Beth walks in the hallway and Matt and Mike are there. Uh, those two guys, they're number two. They're pointing over to Borgov's crew. They're, those two guys, they're number two and three in the world. And those guys, KGB, make sure Borgov doesn't run away. Uh-huh. Beth asked them to save a seat for her mother. And then we get the scene, Spencer. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, for the heavyweight championship of the world, it's Borgov sitting down at the chessboard with Beth. And they start. Uh-huh. Um, question for you. Did you expect that we would get this main event no. midway through the fourth nope. episode of this miniseries? Nope, 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 nope. This, this felt like something that they would be building to at the very end, that he'd be wrapped up in cloak and dagger and shadows, and we'd never have a full impression of him, just in kind of an intimidating visage that would eventually come to the fore. But now they're kind of setting this up as, it's a, it's a different way to, there are a lot of different ways to do your sports story, your triumph story, and one of those is you'll lose early, you get back up, and then you rise again. And it seems to be they're going in that route. I just wasn't expecting it with this series. Yeah, this is Rocky Four. Yes. And 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 Rocky fights uh, Dolph Lundgren like 30 minutes into the the movie, and you're like, oh, okay, all right, I get it. I didn't expect this, mm-hmm. but I know there will be a round two because there, <laughs> there's got to be. Uh, but Borgoff sits down, chessboard with Beth, and they start thrilling piano music plays in the background. Um, wild flourishes, super exciting scene. Spanish announcers are all over this game, boy, covering the opening. Says that Beth usually plays a Sicilian, but Borgoff has been called what, Spencer? The master of the Sicilian. I like all Russians uh, before him. Damn, running into a buzzsaw there. Cut to Alma in the hotel room. She stops, looks at herself in the mirror, seems very upset, either with what she sees or what she feels. She does not look okay. Cut, I want, I want to put a plug in that scene. I want to go back to it. Alma looking in the mirror, seeming upset. Cut to the game, and the announcers are following it. Apparently, Borgoff is playing the closed Sicilian. Folks are taking pictures as they play. Woo! Taking pictures as they play. Uh-huh. Um, Beth plays the Rosolimo, which apparently is rare. I don't know. 
Um, Beth immediately seems upset, or maybe it was Morgoth that played the Rosolomo. Do you remember? I think I think it was him because there is never a moment that we see Beth in this game where she seems comfortable, where she sees her no. usual, very concentrated, very focused, staring you down kind of edge. Every moment we see Beth at play in this game, it's in that same moment we see her when she was losing to Penny. It's just off, nervous, uncertain about what her next move is going to be. It's not a good look on her compared to her usual level of confidence. Yep, yep. She seems upset. She's holding her neck as she contemplates the Borg. Borg off all business. Mr. Business. Um, increasingly, Beth seems upset and unsure what to do. Beth looks at the board, then looks out into the crowd, sees the empty seat, which is her mom. Not there. Looks back at the board, looks up, sees Mr. Scheibel, knows what to do. What does she do, Spencer? She forfeits. Drops she, the king. And she she forfeits in the, sa- in the same way that um, that, uh, George, that no, Georgie did, too. She knocks over her piece. Yeah. Knocks over the king and then sinks back into her seat. Cut to Beth in the hotel room. Beth is undressing and detailing what happened to Alma. Tough scene here. Tough, tough scene. Spencer, probably the toughest of the of the season uh, or the, the show so far. Quote, I didn't expect it. No one really plays it. It threw me off. Just like he knew it would. From that point on, the whole game was like a foregone conclusion. I, I, I couldn't fight this feeling that I'd already lost. Like in the books, where you know the outcome, but you play it out just to see how it would happen. I mean, every move he made was so obvious, so unimaginative, so bureaucratic. And the whole time I would look at his face, there was no doubt, no weakness. I'm so glad you didn't see it. Great line there. Tough, tough that she's delivering it to what turns out to be Alma's uh, corpse. Beth sits down on the bed, touches Alma's leg, can tell something is wrong. She goes over to the bedside table, turns on the light, and Alma is, in fact, dead. Mm-hmm. So that's another, you know, we didn't expect the Borgov uh, Harmon main event quite so early. I did not expect, uh, I would have I would have put, I know you're a betting man, so this is going to make perfect sense to you. I would have put it at minus 210 that Alma dies in the series, uh, but I would have had it at episode seven for sure. I did not think it would happen this fast. Uh, they, they've been foreshadowing her health problems for a while, but I assumed it was going to be some kind of slow, cancerous kind of demise that would be a very much win one for the Gipper kind of moment in the last episode that you know gets her inspired and encouraged to go through. That's a classic trope. Nope. Midway through the series, her main supportive figure in her life is out of the picture. Yeah, so Alma's dead. Cut to Alma being wheeled out of the room. Beth is curled up in a chair. A doctor approaches Beth and says he's sorry. Beth, what was it? Hepatitis, maybe. We will know tomorrow. Mm-hmm. All right, whoop! Let's let's put a breaks into the recap. I want to ask a question of you, Spencer. Spencer. Please, please do. What are they suggesting here? Um, because I think that you got a multiple choice test here on what happened, right? You have the surface level. She went to lay down. She wasn't feeling good. She died. She had hepatitis, probably a bum liver from Mm -hmm. all of the drinking. Um, they do go on to suggest that the drinking may have had something to do with it or, or could there be a read that Alma looked in the mirror was upset with what she saw, upset about herself, upset with everything, and potentially uh, could have offed herself here. Which which way did you take that? I mean, they're leaving open options. They've given they've given us enough rope to hang ourselves with. Sorry for that expression right now. Um, Ooh, that, damn. Uh, that she's had health issues for a long time. That she's been in incre- seemingly increasingly worse health. And hepatitis, I think it's C, can cause various liver pro- various issues related to liver failure, cirrhosis. Now. 
she looks uh, pretty healthy and pretty functional for people I've seen that have been suffering from liver failure. Um, so she could not. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna throw this out there. I, I happen to know about this. You cannot. That is not someone dying of late stage liver disease. She would have had a distended belly. She would have had yellow skin. She would have had bloodshot eyes. She would have been incapable of staying awake more than about four hours a day. So the idea that she died of late late stage liver failure, either is off the table or they were sloppy in how they, they illustrated it, right? And that's what I'm debating in my mind, is that it is, <laughs> unless the show is focusing on just the physical toll of a disease, there's a lot of shorthand that a lot of shows do for expressing that someone's in, in the moment, reaching a health stage of where they're about to die. It's remarkably yeah. unrealistic, but it's pretty common. So I could write it off that way, or the show is realistic, it has given us a different kind of foreshadowing, and they're going in that path, but they just don't feel the need to say it, or everyone in the room is working under, under a, polite, a polite fiction to explain what actually occurred. That is going to be my guess. Uh, I land on 55% confident on this, so it's not, it's not very high, because like you say, they, they really leave it open for interpretation here. But my read on this situation is Alma did something, maybe took too many pills, maybe just drank way, way, way more than she should with certain pills, and she offed herself. And I think that the doctor um, and the the attendant that are from the hotel that are there are dancing around the subject in front of Beth. So that Beth, and I think that Beth truly does not know. Um, I think Beth truly does think it's something like hepatitis, and I think Alma killed herself. That's my read. It, it is very possible. It is very likely. It's very possible, and it was all too common, particularly during that era, and even through today, where doctors would provide both emotional cover for the family, but also a certain measure of legal cover, because suicide has a lot of legal implications that can put a family in a much worse financial situation thereafter, too. Yeah, life insurance policy not paying out, things like that. Um, yeah, so that's my read. I think I think it's open for interpretation, though. Anyway, back to the scene. Um Beth, can you give me a tranquilizer? Uh, the doctor says, yes, I have a sedative. Beth, I don't want a sedative, which, you know, she doesn't need to be just laid up in bed, right? She's still got to play chess uh, or she's got to get out of there. Um, she's got to make some decisions. Um, could I have a prescription for Librium? This is where she asked for Librium. Librium is benzodiazepine. Shout out to me for calling that from episode one. Back, um, you don't need a prescription to buy Librium in Mexico. Ooh, really? <laughs> Holy shit. Holy well, fuck. Best. Holy fuck, Spencer. Keep me out of Mexico. Um, Gus says, I suggest mepro, mepropamate. Look this up. This is a um, a drug that is given um, for like short-term anxiety. It's it's much more mild than Librium. So what's going on here is the the doctor is saying to Beth, well, you, you don't need a prescription for Librium, but I suggest you don't take Librium. I suggest yeah. you take this thing. Um, but there's a pharmacy right here in the hotel. Again, I'm very sorry for her loss. Um, Beth, no, completely swatting aside this mepropromate thing. No, she's got, she, all she heard from this conversation was I can get, I can get Librium without a prescription here at the pharmacy she's, in the hotel. And I'm sure she's going to fill a suitcase before she gets on the plane. Fuck. Yes, she is. And this is back, this is pre 9-11. So she could probably just bring all that shit back with her. Uh, nobody would care, uh, unless she happened to get randomly drawn in customs. But even back then, I don't even know if they would care. Um, the guy from the hotel says um, they will do what they can to help with the arrangement, signing papers, dealing with the authorities, et cetera, et cetera. Says the bill will be taken care of. I thought that was a was a nice touch uh, from this the guys to cover the bill. He 
these guys started so great. It was, you know, and then, everything will help. <laughs> and then, man, did he find a way to end on a horrible note. Yep. And what you're referencing here is he says, quote, though, I'm sure none of the many margaritas she consumed was the culprit in your mother's untimely passing. Beth. Why? Flaring Why? with anger. Flaring with anger. at It's such an unnecessary comment. Says she did mention something about the quality of the tequila. The guy, gulp, swallows. Again, whatever we can do to help. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beth writes something on a piece of paper and says, I need to find him. Uh, which did the, you know who she was talking about when, uh, when she wrote on I, the piece of paper the I first assumed, time through? I assumed, yes. I did not. I, th- that actually kind of surprised me that she would call the guy. But she's calling Austin Wheatley, the um, her previous, I guess, adopted the, the father. Man got, the man who got lost somewhere around Denver. Yeah, and they actually say, I have your call from Denver. Uh, so that gives us that gives us the idea of who she's talking about. At first, Austin seems to not even recognize Beth. What a douchebag this fucking guy is. He is the worst, Spencer. Beth introduces herself as his daughter. I thought that was odd because uh, I'm sure he does not think of her that way. Beth explains that Alma is dead, and Austin immediately wants nothing to do with this. Just I thought that was completely. That is his, he, his first reaction. Is you notice he does not say I'm sorry. That's terrible. Shed a tear. Nothing. I just want nothing to do with this situation. Beth, can you please take care of this for me? Uh, and, Unbelievable, the, this guy. The level of just complete, complete lack of emotional attachment or just even complete lack of empathy this person expresses legitimately caught me off guard. Just, the worst. Even a sociopath in this moment would know enough to at least cover for the fact you don't feel anything. But no, this guy feels no need. What a shit. Beth says she doesn't know where to bury her. Austin does at least recommend a place. Beth asks about the house. He, this is a little a diamond in the rough ball. here. Minor pet yeah, well, the, yeah, this is a little, she's getting a, getting a little bone here. Um, she says that the house is hers. Uh, he says the house is hers. Just make the mortgage payment. He asks her if she needs money. Uh, he says to call a specific bank, they'll settle her, set her up without. So basically, like I guess he knows where the the title to the the bank and maybe the mortgage loan is, and he, uh-huh. he sets her up there and basically says, if you just handle all this shit, I don't want to deal with anything. Um, then um, you can have the house. Uh, what do you think of that, Spencer? I mean, it's something. It's still like she's been living in the house nonstop as is. It's not much that he's giving her right now. I mean, okay, I'll, I'll rephrase. It is a gift. It is something, but it's just a continuation of trying to wipe his hands of any responsibility he otherwise would have. It's a cash payoff to just leave me alone. 100% it is. Um, Says, um, basically just get the hell out of here. Uh, Beth then finally calls him out for, I mean, just being not a human being. And says, do you even want to know how she died? She explains it's hepatitis. He, oh, damning statement here. She was sick a lot. Now, I took this... Not to mean she was actually sick a lot. I think he was referencing your drinking. It's very possible, yes. And it's Beth's reaction to it is to just slam the phone home and be done with that conversation. Yep, cut to Beth in the hotel room, despondent, clearly overwhelmed. And we pan out and she's on the balcony. Cut to Beth going into the pharmacia, pointing out what she wants. Cut to Beth on the plane. Cut to Alma being carted onto the plane in a casket. Beth is watching this out the window. Tough. Tough scene. Yeah. Uh, we keep seeing Beth at the pharmacy, and uh, then we see that Beth has ordered a drink. What did she order, Spencer? Do you notice the drink order there? I don't, but was it a Gibson? It's a Gibson. That's right. That, and I, Beth... I, I in no way made note of that, but just from a production standpoint, that would be the smart drink to make. 
she gets the Gibson, which is the drink that Alma typically would drink on the planes, and she toasts the empty seat next to her with tears coming down her face. Cut to what Beth is getting in the pharmacia, and she simply says, Moss. Mm-hmm. Now you're a you're a man of dual languages. Um, can you can you um Oh, okay. That means more. Got it. Translated. Yep. So she just ordered more of the pills. You called it as soon as she figured out that she could get Librium without a prescription at the pharmacy in the hotel. What does Beth do? She goes and she gets some and not just a little. Moss. That is the end of the episode. And it's in keeping with everything we've seen of her previously. That when she finds a means of getting access to something that she wants, she gets everything that she possibly can of it. Yep, and that's what she's done. She's loaded her suitcase with Librium. So I think we are meant to assume, um, you know, like there are, like, I think about like Game of Thrones, right? We covered Game of Thrones, where there would be scenes where like someone is like, goes to like a village and goes like, I need to raise an army. And they get in the whole back and forth. And then finally they go, okay, we'll join your sword. And when that scene happens, you're just meant to assume they now have an army. Like, fuck yeah. the logistics. They just have an army. There's an army like, now. I think that's what's going on here. Fuck the logistics. Fuck the reality of being able to bring all this shit back into the country. I think what we're meant to do now is to just assume that Beth has an unlimited supply of Librium. Yeah, this is the Rob Stark calling the banners moment. The banner, the, 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 the ravens and the crows have been sent. The drugs have come back. Don't worry about any more of the details now. And that's the end of the episode. Spencer, any concluding thoughts before we jump into our segments? But it was a solid episode in a different way than I was expecting. The chess, as always, was exciting. The show has done wonders for me in chess. However, this was one of the first episodes of where I was really invested in the plot. And one of the main ways they did that was by very much directly hitting the themes and character notes for Beth over the course of this series. It's like they've been kind of implied before, but here they are just straight out on the surface, even having a mentor character to explain them to the audience and it's appreciated it really sets that yeah chess is a, is a focal point but we also have a plot we also have characters they're going on their own particular arcs and they're interesting and i'm rather invested in them in a way that i wasn't expecting to have with the series yep i think this is the sucky in episode i really do um because now beth's honor for here's where we're left right she got beat down by borgoff competitive juice is flowing Going back to liquor wounds, mom's dead. She's got the house. She's got unlimited supply of Librium. And we've seen what she does when left alone with alcohol. So all bets are fucking off for episode five, six, and seven, uh, my friend. It is, uh, who knows where we're going. I'm excited to find out, though. Let's jump into our segments. We will start with best line of the episode. I alone am emperor. Best line of the episode. Although Spencer will supply me with some nominees. Spencer, do you have any nominees? Or best line of the episode. I do. We can do them in a back and forth round robin fashion. Let's do it. Uh, first one, I won't get pregnant. Famous last words. All right. I will nominate Alma. Paris. My God. Things are beginning to happen. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with Beth. We're talking about Alma. She came in at 3 o'clock this morning. 2.30 the day before. He's got a green dodge that always seems to be at her disposal. And they've had lunch and dinner every day this week. I'm pretty sure they're fucking. That just really tickled me as a line. Funny line. <clears throat> Cut. Uh, this one, which might be the line of the series from Mr. Scheibel. Oh, People absolutely. like you have a hard time. Two sides of the same coin. You've got your gift. And you've got what it costs. Hard to say for you what that will mean. You'll have your time in the sun, but for how long? You have so much anger in you. You have to be careful. Great line. Great line. My personal favorite of the episode. But we've got a couple other ones that are possible. 
Um, I've never I've never been to Oaxaca, but I imagine it resembles Denver. And my own personal interpretation that if Alma had lived for an episode longer, she would have instructed Beth that she could never go to Oaxaca. Probably. <laughs> uh, I will go with my main man, the MVP of the episode in my heart, Gorgi. For you, Beth Hardiman, I'd resign the old-fashioned way. Best, best character in the episode. Best character in the episode. We even saw Mr. That kid is a, in this episode. Kid, that kid's a winner yeah. right there. I like uh, him. Last quote from me, uh, from Borgoff. She's an orphan, a survivor. She's like us. Losing is not an option for her. Otherwise, what would her life be? Great line, and again, asking one of the key themes of the series, I feel. Very good nominees for best line of the episode. Now, two award best line of the episode. Queen's Gambit, episode four is... You're the best I've ever played until you play Borgoff. Oh, okay. You're throwing a change up for me, one you didn't even list on there, but yeah. Yeah. Solid line. Yeah. Very little, intimidating. Little curveball for you, but yep, that's the line of the episode. You're the best I've ever played until you play Borgoff. No. Now we transition to the scene of the episode. I mean, I, in, I'm such a, I go chalk with these best scenes of the episode. I really do. And I, I realize I picked like the kind of boring, most straightforward one, but I don't know how it can be anything other than her playing Borgoff. It's a great moment. I mean, that's huge. It's, it's a huge moment. It's been built up to all hell. And I love the difference in how the two of them express themselves during the course of the game. Of where Borgoff is a rock. He's mechanical in his style of play. Utterly unflappable. Bureaucratic, as Beth says. Bureaucratic is a wonderful way to put it, too. Meanwhile, Beth is barely holding it together just before yep. the onslaught of this player struggling holding holding her neck um anna taylor joy has that tell for beth um that she's she's worked in that anytime she gets stressed out she puts she kind of puts both palms up against the front of her neck uh with her fingers going around the back of her neck that's a that's a tell that beth is really on the edge um good may i offer a couple i'll I'll agree with your decision but may i offer a couple honorable mentions yeah sure fire away uh one I very much liked was I like that they've used Mr. Scheibel as a repeated motif over this series. The little flashbacks of him, particularly the flashback of you resign now, I love they don't even have to tell us anymore. They don't have to even complete the line. The moment we see that, we hear the line and we have that immediate trigger and that immediate response to yep. the same. It's a really mm-hmm. great cinematic choice that they keep doing. Um, let's see here, what else? An odd bit of filmmaking I've, liked, I've thought about. I love the hotel entrance shots they do on this show. Oh, yeah, there's a strong where she's walking up steps. Yeah, They did that both in Las Vegas and now they've done it here in Mexico City. They are great, beautiful shots. And I love these hotels they found. These hotels that apparently haven't updated since 1960. Great choice. Yeah, very strong. Hell yeah. We need to to visit some of these when when the world gets back to normal. I like the scene of Borgoff with his family at the zoo just because of how differently it paints him as a chess player compared to her. Of where... She's the prodigy. She's the one that has no certainty of what her life is going to be after this, whereas she has no life outside of chess. Borkoff is a family and a son. He's so much apparently more normal than she is. This is his job. He's a chess bureaucrat. (laughs) This is just his job. It's it's just so much more of a healthy relationship with the game that's implied with him having a family going to zoo together than anything Beth has by comparison. Um, Yep. And last quick quick, quick two for me, I loved seeing uh, Alma playing before a crowd, just as a final kind of culmination for her journey right before she exits stage left. Um, And then I loved the scenes of Beth playing with the young prodigy. This because of how much in common the two of them had, the wonderful moments of the two of them acting off each other. It's probably some of my favorite moments in the episode, though. I agree that in terms of a 
overall importance for the plot, the final culmination of the challenge between Beth and Borgov has to take the kick. Yep. <clears throat> Completely agree, although your honorable mentions are spot on. I now turn it over to my favorite segment of the week, what we look forward to every week here on Mangum Talks TV, and that is Spencer's Wikipedia Spiral of the Week. Spencer, take it away. Now, Lee, you and I have discussed a great deal off pod who might be the kind of historical inspirations for Beth, because most of the main name characters in the series aren't real people. They are artistic creations. But they seem to be drawing for some actual chess greats over the course of history. And the last episode name-dropped somebody that seems more than a little bit on point. The first internationally regarded American player, Paul Morphy. We talked about Beth saying that I was so proud when I uh, noticed an error in one of Morphe's games. So I decided to dial into a little bit more about the man. I was fascinated to see the comparisons between her and he over the course of time. Similarly, they were chess prodigies. They were the greatest Americans of their era. They rose to international recognition in a way that caught people entirely off guard. However, Morphe also, probably not most similar to Beth, didn't really give a shit about chess. In fact, nope. by age 22, he never played a competitive game again. May have only played a single game of chess again for the rest of his life. He had enough. I don't think Beth is going in that direction, but eh, let's explore Morphe's background and see what, what other threads we can pull. He was born in New Orleans in 1837 to a wealthy and powerful aristocratic family. This is in the Antebellum South where he was, also, also, oddly enough, of oddly mixed background. His father was a Spanish immigrant, his mother was French Creole, and notably, his father was one of the most preeminent men in the state. He'd served in the state legislature, he was the attorney general, and at the time of most of um, Paul's childhood, he was a justice on the Louisiana Supreme Court. Big dude in the community. From a very young age, uh, Paul Morphy had demonstrated that he had a certain kind of precocious brilliance, and one of the earliest ways that expressed itself was through chess of where chess at the time being very much the leisure activity of the bored rich, he'd watched his dad and his uncle play a couple games. He'd never actually received any training in the sport. He'd never actually sat down to play a game himself. But when he saw his uncle uh, accept a draw in the game, he stepped in, this is all of like six, to advise his uncle that he could have won. Somewhat surprised, his uncle and his dad said, uh, what do you mean? Paul Murphy then got up to the board, reassembled all the pieces where they last had played, and show his uncle, showed his uncle how he could have played differently and won the game. This, <laughs> this without ever having played a single game himself. He was already providing wow. advice on strategy. Now, if that doesn't make you feel just sort of dumb. Uh, it continues. By age nine, he was widely regarded as one of the best, if not the best players in all of New Orleans and Louisiana. And this was cemented by when General Winfield Scott, who have not heard him before, was the commanding officer of the United States Armed Forces for both then and the next 20 years through the Civil War, arrived in Louisiana and offered that he would love to play the best chess player in New Orleans. He was not most necessarily the most experienced player of chess, but had a background and really enjoyed playing and was incredibly regarded as a military commander. And so was a little bit caught off guard and disappointed of when a nine-year-old is presented in front of him to be his opponent. Thinking he'd been personally insulted, he got up to leave before everyone had said, no, 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 trust us, he's really good, give it a try. <laughs> yeah. And so the developer of the Anaconda plan that helpfully choked the Confederacy during the Civil War sat down to play two games with a nine-year-old. 
and was obliterated in both games. And when I say obliterated, I don't, I'm not being hyperbolic. Best as I can determine, in these two games, he was checkmated in ten moves, and then checkmated in six moves. That's not even fair. Whoa, that almost seems like a uh, like a novelty, like a sort of, you know, something you have to set up to do. It, that's the kind of thing I'm worried. It's almost just like, let me demonstrate how fast you can lose at this game. Because we've, like, discussed on this program, winning, winning in less than 20, or winning even in less than 30, is an incredible accomplishment. Winning in 10 or 6? You're playing against a cat, by comparison. What you're, that's what you're playing against. <laughs> and Mr. Morphy was not done. Three years later, he's 12, he's started to develop a bit more of a national reputation, and he sits down to play with a visiting Hungarian grandmaster, uh, Johann Lowenthal, who was widely regarded as one of the best players in the world in the 1850s. He sits down to play a 12-year-old. Again, he thinks this is kind of a joke. Until over the course of three, there's differing, differing accounts of how badly he was defeated, but everyone agrees that at a minimum he lost two games and drew the third, but a lot of accounts say he lost all three games to, an, at that point, to him, unknown 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. This should give us a bit of an impression just of the ability of this person, but let me remind you, Paul Morphy did not give a shit. Chess was a recreational activity to him. And so, best as we could determine, he then did not play another game of chess for seven years. He went to school. He got his law degree. Mm -hmm. Excelled in academic features. Took up fencing. A lot of young, gentlemanly activities. Apparently he was all a five forward, so he wanted the ability to stab people with a a sword if they made fun of his height. Um, But he got his law degree so young that he was too young to legally practice law at the time in Louisiana. And so having nothing to do, his uncle, who'd previously seen him, you know, demonstrate chess brilliance, convinced him, through no small amount of persuasion, hey, there is the first American Chess Congress happening right now in New York. It's me, all the greats mm-hmm. of the country there. You haven't played in seven years, but, you know, how about you go and compete and let's see how you do. And so with a little bit of brow beating, a little bit of arm twisting, Paul Morphy decided to go to New York and effortlessly become crowned as the U.S. chess champion. Of course. Of course. It wasn't (laughs) even hard. He wrecked shop with all the best players in the country and earned a reputation as being very likable and incredibly well-regarded by his peers. Uh, Chess Monthly at the the time wrote, his his genial disposition, his unaffected modesty, and his gentlemanly courtesy have endeared him to all his acquaintances. He was very much regarded as an utter gentleman. And this was helped by the fact that, A, he, had, he, was, a, he was an aristocrat, and he was chained and trained in all the aspects of decorum and very much adhered to them personally. But also, he did not give a shit. He viewed chess as not something that was like a professional activity. To him, it was basically recreation. He viewed it as a somewhat more moral way of engaging in, like, you know, cards or, well dare he say the term gambling, which he very much frowned on gambling. But while he saw it as more intellectual and potentially more... He just thought it was a game, right? It was a a recreational sport and distraction. I mean, there's a quote from him that chess never has been and never can be aught but a recreation. It should not be indulged in to the detriment of other and more serious avocations. He did not take this seriously. This is a genius that found chess and was remarkably good at it, but he never wanted to really be a chess pro. That just wasn't his life goal. 
In fact, several things that were written at the time said he was actually incredibly frustrated by how much better he was than his opponents, particularly with respect to time. As I told back in episode one, this is about well, this is several years before timed chess became a thing. So mm -hmm. your, your opponent could take as long as they wanted with each of their moves. Ugh, that sounds miserable. Uh, it was, because Paul Morphy would move like a modern player. He'd look at the board, he'd move. It'd be over in seconds. And then he'd have to wait up to 75 minutes for his opponent to decide his move. That was one of the opponents they played, where his opponent averaged 75 minutes a move for the entire game that they played. Which yeah. He could barely contain his frustration. He said after the game, I will never lose a game to that man again in my life, so help me. And he never did. He utterly slaughtered that guy in every other game they played. Just because of how utterly frustrated he was by just this, from his view, just lack of respect and how slow they were going about the game. Mm -hmm. And it's important to note here, again, the man had not played chess for basically seven years. To some accounts, he been playing a couple games with college friends, just like on his off time. But that's about mm -hmm. it. But still, with no practice, he won outright. Again, he defeated every opponent, but he also won outright 87% of the games he played during this period. That's not counting. I'm not saying like it was 87% wins or draws. He won outright 87% of the games he played, with a few draws and a couple Ooh. losses on the side. This man, a nice record. he never had any degree of challenge from these opponents. And the U.S. Chess Association made immediate, American Chess Association made immediate note of this. Because at the time, the U.S. was a chess backwater. It was a place where people could basically go to hang out when they were like on the lam or on vacation. It was never a place that the true greats of the world would go for an honest-to-God challenge. And so mm -hmm. seeing this guy come out of nowhere and wreck shop with all the best players they had, the American Chess Association put out a bulletin that essentially challenged any player in the world, any of the greats, come to America and will offer up to a $5,000 prize if you can beat this kid that we got here. Now, to put that in perspective, $5,000 was, and I double-checked this, effectively 30 years' salary for a soldier during this period. Sheesh. And not far more... Big, it big been, bucks. It would have been far more, that, more than that for a laborer. However, all of the European greats essentially went... No, can't be bothered. No, that would just be such a waste of a trip and a waste of a time. We have much better activities we'd prefer to engage in. If your so-and-so would really like to come and play, he can come and visit us, and maybe we'll find the time to beat him. But no, so otherwise, we have other more gentlemanly activities we'd prefer to engage in than traveling to America. And rather than take this as a personal insult, Morphe, who again did not give a shit, just went home. Because again... He was effectively just trying to buy time until he could legally be an attorney. So he went back to New Orleans, but the New Orleans chess club essentially went, no, 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 no. We're not done with you yet. There's potential here. And so they sent a personal challenge to who was viewed as not necessarily the best player in Europe anymore. He'd kind of been low, lower point of his career, but certainly the most famous player in the world, Howard Staunton we've mentioned previously because, again, this guy was so great that modern chess pieces are named after him. The modern style of shape, shape of chess pieces are named after him. Incredibly influential Ooh. player in the game. Again, he was no longer at the top of his game. He'd kind of given up competitive chess for a few years to, oddly enough, be a Shakespearean scholar. And he also wasn't the best of health. But he was one of the most famous players in the world. So the fact the New Orleans Chess Club challenged him was very pointed. 
Mm-hmm. He essentially sent back a letter, which, if I read it, would read, he's politely declining. He's offering his compliments. <laughs> he's saying that, you know, I haven't really played the game much in recent years. But it includes a rather ambiguous line at the end that essentially just says, you know, this respected player that you have, who we have the greatest admiration for, if mm-hmm. he is desirous to win his spurs among the chess chivalry of Europe, he must take advantage of his proposed visit next year, and then he will meet in this country and in France and in Germany and in Russia many champions ready to test and do honor to his prowess. Now, okay. most of the rest of this message can be interpreted as saying, dude, I don't really play that much anymore, and I kind of want to maintain my reputation as a world great, so no, I don't really want to play you. But that last part of the message read to Paul Morphy as a bit of a challenge. So mm-hmm. he got on a boat and showed up at the guy's door. It's like, hey, <laughs> I'm ready okay. to play. Right. Is that what you want? Uh, all right, I like to cut his chip. I read this as a challenge. I'm ready to accept. And Staunton kind of did everything in his power to say no, but not really say no. He delayed, mm-hmm. he cited he needed preparation because he hadn't played competitively in a couple well, of years. of course. He agreed to matches and then postponed. He even, and this was a bit of a douche move, accused Morphe of not having the money necessary to put up a wager because all of the chess players at the time put up wagers because that was the main way the oh, tournament money was done. Fucking come on. This, yeah. this was, this was, this, low was bo- this was both low blow but also really smart to avoid not, to provide a justification for not playing it. It was low blow because it was obviously just not true because Morphe had a lot of money. It's also really smart because Morphe did not play chess for money. This was an aristocrat. He did. He was not in this for the cash. It would be below him to be in it for the cash. And he had very personal ethical issues on the subject of gambling. And so he sent Staunton back a very terse letter that just simply said, Permit me to repeat that I am not a professional player, that I have never wished to make any skill I possess the means of pecuniary advancement, and that my earnest wish is to never play for any sake but honor. A very aristocratic, you son of a bitch kind of message in response. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, unable to play Staunton, Murphy decided to cross into continental Europe, where he proceeded to play all of the greats at the time. And wreck shop. Just make a mess of these poor European devils. And when I say he played the greats, he played people that we've previously discussed in this program. He played Adolf Anderson, the famous winner of the Immortal Game, which you may remember from episode mm, one. I know that guy. Tough first name. Tough first name. Uh, you know, it's a rough read in modern times, but it was a game played over tea with Kazertsky during the middle of the 1851 London Chess Tournament. Not in the tournament, but while they were taking a break. Whereas I've mm-hmm. told you before, Anderson sacrificed a bishop, both rooks, and a queen in the course of like a handful of moves to somehow then catch his opponent and checkmate, despite the fact he killed almost none of his opponent's pieces a famous moment of the romantic era of chess play. Morphy played him while suffering from a horrible mix of gastroenteritis and being so thoroughly bled by leeches that he could not stand. Paul Morphy was bedridden during this game. And when I say game, he played 11 matches with him over the course of eight days while he was almost too weak to lift his hands to move the pieces. And he proceeded to win seven outright, draw two, and lose two against a person that was widely regarded as the best player in the world. He slaughtered him. Couldn't get out of bed. He's still beating his ass. He is still beating his ass to the point where newspapers at the time interviewed Anderson to say, dude, what the hell happened? Why didn't you play better? To which he had two things to say in response. One, he he essentially just kind of flippantly said, well, Morphe would not let me play better. Uh, And then point number two, well... 
this was a longer response. Well, I wasn't at the top of my game. Hadn't had, I was a little out of practice. But regardless, Morphe is the stronger player. In fact, he is the best player in the world. In fact, he is likely the strongest player to ever play the game. Which put everybody on notice of when the person they regarded as the best in the world is being that seemingly hyperbolic to describe a 20-year-old coming out of nowhere. Well, 21-year-old mm-hmm. coming out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. This continued of where the nobility and the royalty started to take take interest, leading to the 1858 opera game of where Morphy played two German, to a, a German and a French aristocrat. German noble Carl II and the French aristocrat Comme Isoard de Impronounceable Last Name at Church of the V. He decided to play them of the two of them would work in concert, negotiating and discussing their moves to then move one set of pieces in response to him. In 16 moves, he defeated them, despite the fact that he traded all of his main pieces other than a rook and a bishop, but essentially no pawns. It's a beautiful game to look at because he has his pawns assembled like a wall protecting his king, while his two surviving other pieces have the other side in checkmate, which he famously mm-hmm. did by mean of a queen sacrifice, where he sacrificed his queen to force Ooh. his opponent to get into a checkmate. Flair for the dramatic. Uh, he was a, an incredible example of the romantic era of chess. He liked to attack. He liked to make it a fun, exciting game. He was bored to death with positional chess, as good of it as he was. And this game in particular is often used by instructors to teach the importance of rapid development of one's pieces, the value of sacrifice and mating combinations, and even just basic chess concepts. It's a fundamental game in terms of learning the sport. And now, having slaughtered basically all takers, all the grandmasters, all people that want to challenge him, nobility or otherwise, he started doing these kind of weird handicap and exhibition games. My favorite one being, he played eight players at the same time while blindfolded. He was effectively blindfolded in another room. I don't know why they had to blindfold him in the other room. But so he's he was. doing the Beth Harmon. When the, remember the scene where she got up and looked away from the board and kept playing? Yep, except he's doing it against eight people at the same time while shouting his moves in French. Sheesh, what a fucking guy. Man, he, brain on him. Yeah, and then decided to go on from that to play the five best players in the world in simultaneous matches at the same time. Just because... Some of these matches he did for 10 hours straight with no food or drink. He would have deemed that an ungentlemanly activity to distract people from the game. Flexing on them. Flexing on them. I mean, this, at this point, he's been hailed as the world champion of chess. There is no even formal title of world champion of chess during this period. There's no international competition to award it. But everybody just went, dude, you're the best. Just stop, kind of. Royalty was inviting him to, is inviting him to private audiences. Various members of a senior nobility royalty in other countries were actually traveling from across the world to visit him. This is how much of an international celebrity that he that he was. And so by 1859, he just kind of went home because he'd beaten all comers. He got a bit of a world tour of a, of a tour from major U.S. cities, celebrations wherever he went, practically ticker tape parades. And then he returned to New Orleans. Sure. Yeah. And at 22, yeah. all of the world had fallen before him. And so. As kind of his last moment in the chess world, he issued a standing instruction that for anybody that wanted to play him, he would offer a handicap known as pawn and move of where this is a handicap of where A, you're playing black, so you're giving the other person the advantage of playing white, and B, you're removing one of your pawns from the board at the very start and playing a piece down of where he's getting rid of the pawn that's in front of the king's bishop wow. and just playing what a piece a, down. Yeah. 
And this is the I'll play, this is the Larry Bird. I'm gonna play with my left hand tonight. Situation. Very much so. And nobody took him up on it. No challengers. At this point, he develops a, such a reputation that nobody wanted to be humiliated by playing him. And so, essentially, at 20... Well, it's actually kind of smart to offer the handicap, right? Because then people are less likely to want to play you because yeah. that's a that's a, that's a lose-lose proposition for anybody else who, you know, fashions himself like a really good chess player. It's a power move. Nobody wants to be humiliated playing that. And from that perspective, it enabled him to essentially go into early retirement from competitive chess, where at age 22, he never played a competitive game again. He never played in a oh. tournament. He didn't even like to speak about chess. He returned to law like he'd originally planned, and that was his life goal. Chess was a polite distraction. Now, there's a couple... That is a hell of a lawyer with that brain. Uh, actually enough, he never got to really practice for a couple reasons. And it also factors into why he didn't have possibly... why Another reason is why he didn't return to competitive chess. One, it was 1859. What seminal event in U.S. history happened two years later that had a decisive effect on the American South? The uh, Civil War, I would say. The American Civil War. Ha! Look at me! Well done, sir. Which disturbed him to his core. Seeing the devastation, seeing the loss of life, seeing the utter shattering of Southern society that he'd grown up in, he came to view chess as even more unimportant and frivolous than he'd ever thought before. That seeing this carnage, this kind of recreational activity, never, it no longer felt appropriate to him. And there's a quote from him that I am more strongly confirmed than ever in the belief that time devoted to chess is literally frittered away. It is, to be sure, a most exhilarating sport, but it is only a sport. And it is not to be wondered that it's such as has been passionately addicted to the charming pastime should one day ask themselves whether sober reason does not advise its utter dereliction. He was done. Mm. He had seen the world and all of its terror and no longer was really as interested in this kind of recreational pastime. It also didn't help that even when he was able to open a law practice, Everyone that came in saying, hey, I need to hire you as attorney, just sat down and said, so let's talk about chess. You want to play chess? Can we talk about chess? Let me interview you about your chess accomplishment. Nobody came to him for legal advice. They just wanted to discuss chess. Hmm. So eventually, he just kind of closed up shop because nobody came to him to practice law. Everyone wanted to engage in chess that he would kind of personally decided he just never wanted to do again. And given that he was that kind of aristocratic old money, from there, he just sort of retreated into his money. He became the idle rich, and despite every invitation in the world, they could practically never even get him to attend a chess tournament as a spectator. Even when he would, even when he was invited to a chess tournament like 20 years later, he refused to even discuss chess while there. He just kind of sat sullen in his chair and watched, and when it was over, he left. Even when, uh, mm. even when um, Steinitz, the greatest player in the world uh, uh, after him, Wilhelm Steinitz, came up to him and said, hey... I've tried to arrange a game with you for years. Can we just talk chess? Because I'm really impressed and you're the most amazing player I've ever seen. Uh, Morphy wouldn't even talk to him. Just wouldn't even discuss chess. Just politely said, hi, how are you? And then just ignored him from there on after when he tried to discuss chess. From there, his life was kind of weird. Of where apparently wrapped up in his money and with nothing else to do, he kind of sort of went a little bit, you know, nuts. Most of the, a lot of people were recorded at the time that he would just kind of wander the streets muttering to himself, seemingly just smile at random, wrapped up in his own head, swinging his cane to beat down anybody that ever tried to get close to him, and occasionally just seeing a woman that looked vaguely interested to him and just walking after her for several hours at a distance, never approaching her, but just doing this weird Ugh, kind of stalker there's a, routine. This is a good move. 
Uh, he developed this abject fear that everyone was trying to poison him so that he would only eat food that was prepared by his mom and his sister, mom or his sister. Seems legit. Uh, and became convinced that every neighborhood barber was conspiring to slit his throat. This got bad enough that his family tried to have him committed to an asylum, but he was still so brilliant that though obviously stark raving mad to anybody that came in to testify against him, he successfully argued for his sanity so much the attorneys declined to have him admitted. The authorities declined to have him admitted. Too smart to be crazy. Uh, he then died of a stroke in his late 40s uh, with having a very much flash-in-the-pan moment of influence on chess. And part of that was driven by the fact that he came about in the era of when the world was beginning to become interconnected. Similar to how the Immortal game was immediately published around the world, all of Paul Morphy's games were suddenly the subject of chess publications, were immediately sent by telegraph to all corners of the world. Each game written about it, analyzed in detail. So much so that we have an excellent impression of him as the player for even just such a limited career. That he was a leading member of the romantic school of chess. Didn't give a damn about positional chess or the closed game. In fact, rather bored by him because they took too long. His preferred game was as quick as possible so that he could get it done and then move on to something else. He would Sometimes people would challenge him before he wanted to go out and do something. And he would purposely defeat them as fast as possible just so he could get back to what he actually wanted to do with his day. It reflected that he was a master of the open game, so much so that he was like a generation ahead of any of his opponents when it came to that, giving him lots of tactical options that he would delight in employing. He also had this incredible intuitive understanding of the game. As said, his average completion time for a complete game was one hour versus, at the time, eight hours for his opponents. He was just in a different right. league yeah. compared to any of them. That uh -huh. Anderson, that, play, that, that, Ameri that world great that he played at and defeated relatively early, said that if you made even one bad move against him, the moment you realized it, you might as well resign because you had no hope of catching up. He said, I yep. win my games in 70 moves, but Morphe wins his in 20. Yeah, got to play a perfect game to even have a chance. Yeah, that's how I could do. Yep. And pretty much all modern players have basically said that he was really the first modern player, the forefather of modern chess, at least a generation ahead of his time. Kasparov, who we discussed in the last program, said, you know, what is the secret of Morphe's and its ability? I think it was a combination of his unique talent and brilliant erudition, that he was essentially able to just have an immediate feel of position and immediately able to see dozens of moves in advance. Uh, he described him as the first of the American super geniuses when it came to chess, that he conquered the new and old worlds and revealed a thunderous blend of pragmatism, aggression, and accurate calculation to the world that would not be seen in American chess for another half century. Um, Bobby Fischer, Kasparov, um, Unwand, you, all of them have said that he was a chess genius in the most complete sense of the term. Fischer went so far as to say that if you gave him a little bit of training in modern chess, he would defeat every player of every era you ever wanted him to compete in. What this leads to is an interesting amount of uh, back and forth, though, on how good he really was. All of this sounds, you just, you know, hagiographic in terms of describing him, but a certain number of players have basically just said he was so much better than everybody else, it's hard to really know how good he was. It's like he took, like, you know, Michael Jordan and put him back in, like, 1930s basketball. Yeah, when people weren't really playing the modern game, so it's kind of hard to, yeah, he has no real, no barometer, right? And so it's one of the things where people are pretty easily catch errors in his game, but it's driven by the fact that, A, he had no competition really to hone himself against, and B, he did not give a shit. It's one of those things where a lot of people say, Yeah, it's oh, like a Will, mm -hmm. Will Chamberlain situation. Yeah, he's just so far ahead of everybody else, everybody's going to debate for years afterwards, were you that good, or did just everybody else in the world suck that much, by comparison? 
leading to what people now refer to as a bit of the Morphe myth. Um, I think the ultimate conclusion you can really draw from this guy, though, is that he is really a, one of the giants in chess, particularly American chess. This kind of just flash-in-the-pan kind of moment that everybody just uses almost as an archetype to describe the process of this child prodigy. He burns incredibly bright, he burns out quickly, and then he descends into a kind of madness. It really almost kind of defined this archetype in just the popular consciousness. And it is very much embodied in Paul Morphy. And I think you will agree, there are more than a few similarities from his history compared to where we see Beth and where Beth may eventually end up in the future. Wow. Okay, that's a good one. So, um, you know, as always, when Spencer does Wikipedia Spiral of the Week, this one goes before Congress for consideration. Uh, I think it passes both houses and the president signs it because here's the thing on this story. is It makes me wonder... Why do the Beth Harmon story? Why not just do a biopic on this guy? Like that's fascinating. They could easily, if they wanted, they could have easily done a show where they just do a biopic of of this Paul Morphy fella. I mean, that would have been just as good, right? I think. I, I mean, think. I think a they lot made, of drama there. There's a lot of drama. There's a lot. There's a lot of suspense. I think th- you know this show may open the door to see a bit of those you know frustrated, tortured genius kind of biopics, particularly in the world of chess in the future. But we didn't get that one this time around. We went with a much more modern piece instead. Yeah, sure. We could easily do a show on that guy. That would be fascinating. Bass is both both chambers of Congress. President signs it. Good job this week, Spencer. You're on a roll. That's a that's a two for two situation from you with uh with with this week on Paul Murphy and then last week on humans versus machines playing chess. Very good segments. I enjoyed this week, Spencer. We will be back next week to review episode five of The Queen's Gambit. Until then, please check us out. Mangumtalks.com. You can check us out at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music. Heck, if you're in India, Ghana, check us out on Ghana or uh, Savan or Player FM, Pocket Cast, Stitcher. We're everywhere, Spencer. Anywhere you get your podcast, you can check us out. Mangum Talks TV. Thank you for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week. See you. <laughs>